Psalm 87 of the sons of Korah. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, This one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, This one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. Thank you very much, Stephanie. As you probably noticed, we're taking a break this week from 2 Corinthians. But what did you think of that? Crystal clear, right? I got an email this week from a friend saying, you're going to talk for 35 minutes on that? Uh, Welcome to what may be the seven strangest verses in the Bible. And you saw it all revolved around this thing called Zion or Mount Zion. Uh, which is kind of a small bit of acreage in Jerusalem, just a subset of Jerusalem, a little hill area. And yet somehow, according to this, more cherished by God than all of Jerusalem or even all of Israel, maybe all of the world, really special. And not just that, but something strange is going on here as, as we're going to uh, see in a moment. You know, a young couple comes home from the hospital with a newborn baby. And they come home and they take the baby into the room that they've been working on, you know, getting the room just right and setting the baby in the crib. And after a while, the husband just sort of hovers over the crib and says, wow, incredible. Comes around to the other side and remarkable. Goes around to the back. Beyond belief. And from the other room, his wife says, Dear, what are you going on about? And he says, Well, how can they make a crib this good for $49.99? And just, you know, sometimes things just don't, aren't the way they seem. Well, I'd like to divert just for a moment and tell you a little bit about a particular team in the Middle East. Uh, we're with the admission agency Frontiers, as, as we shared last week. And we work with lots of teams in the Middle East, but one in particular, we've visited them a lot. We work with the, with the team people. We've met with some of the believers and uh, just a little bit of history. A few years ago, the team met this young man named Ahmed. Now, Ahmed was from a Muslim background, a Muslim family, uh, but he was a follower of Jesus. And he had been in the Lord a few years, and they got to know him, and, and a kind of a mentoring, close friendship was established with one of the members of the team. And shortly after that, as they were going on, this training came into town about church planting movements. Now, CPM, or church planting movements, is kind of a new methodology, new emphases these days that's being talked about. It emphasizes small groups and obedience to the Lord. And as people come to the Lord, you know, these small groups might even start out as groups of unbelievers, as seekers. But as people come to the Lord, they would then be encouraged to start new small groups. And then those small groups would start other small groups and this, you know, rapidly, potentially rapidly replicating Movement And Ahmed had this training, and he says, you know what, I want to give this a go. So he gathered a bunch of his friends from his particular tribal group and said, guys, 
how would you feel about studying the Bible with me on a weekly basis? And they said, well, it's a little strange. You know, we're Muslims, but why not? Let's, so let's, let's do it. After a while, all of his friends in the group came to faith. And then they all started their own groups. And many in those other groups, they came to faith. And things just began to multiply and grow, and it was really exciting. After a while, some of them were killed by their families, very tragically, two or three. And yet this did not slow things down. People just, the believers were just emboldened. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep growing in Jesus and reaching out to the people in our tribe. And about 80 people then, after a while, of this little mini movement or network, 80 uh, Muslim uh, men and women had come to Christ, and about 14 different groups were formed. A year and a half ago, something happened. Eight of these believers were coming home from kind of a retreat day, and they were driving home, and they were in two cars, and as they were going down a particular narrow street, all of a sudden they were blocked by a a couple other cars. And out of these cars came these, these Muslim fundamentalist extremists, kind of Salafis, if you've heard of that, and they set upon these believers because of their faith. They came out with clubs and bats, and uh, one of the believers escaped, but the rest were just beaten uh, horrendously. They were put in the hospital. One older lady who had just been in the faith maybe a month, she died of her injuries a couple days later. Three of those in the hospitals were key leaders in this movement. We call them William, David, and, and Paul. But they were like Ahmed's key flute chief lieutenants in in leading this movement. And from that point on, this olive branch, that's what we call this olive branch network, began to scatter. Well, this will tie in, as you'll see, to Psalm 87, and we're actually going to come back. What happens next for the olive branch? Well, back to Psalm 87, and if we could perhaps have the original text up there uh, for the chapter, we realize that we face three mysteries. There's sort of three puzzling things about this Uh, at least three, but three mysteries in particular. Mystery number one is the intriguing history around this little bit of land. It all starts with uh, Genesis. So if we could have Genesis 22 up there, please. There we go. Uh, Or the next one, yeah. This goes back to Abraham. Genesis 22 Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Underscore that, Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, let's be clear. God was not into child sacrifice. This was a test of faith of Abraham, which he, he passed with flying colors. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his only son, for the Lord, just to obey, to obey God. But God said, no, stop at the last minute. Don't harm Isaac, but provided uh, as a substitution a lamb. So then it said, verse 14, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Sort of unusual, a little bit of prophecy, this almost a throwaway line. And to this day, in other words, hundreds of years later, in the day of Moses, who was after Abraham, to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be future tense provided. Hmm. Well, fast forward several hundred years later. We now have King David. 
And David is instructed by the Lord, okay, go and purchase a certain plot of land in Jerusalem called the threshing floor of Ornan, or some passages say Aruna. Uh, purchase this land. And uh, what's that about? Well, we're told later that this bit of land then becomes the area that the temple is built on. So in Second Chronicles 3, um, we have the temple, the Temple Mount. The place that the temple, the first temple of the people of Israel is built is on the same bit of land, and it's equated in Second Chronicles 3 with, guess what? Moriah. So the temple area, Moriah, same bit of acreage. And then how to, going forward, what do we have today? Well, this bit of Jerusalem, the old city. This beautiful building there with a golden dome. This is, this is the Islamic dome of the rock. Anybody been there? You know, if you go inside there, what do you find? You find this big flat rock, which would have made a wonderful threshing floor. Was that the threshing floor of Ornan? Maybe. Uh, but same bit of land that the temple was built on, that this is today. And then if that weren't spooky enough, even the end times, Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 140,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Almost disturbing, this something the Lord is doing, this pointing to what's going on, or this particular bit of land, this almost crimson thread based on sacrifice. Why is it so special? Why this peculiar pointing to this bit of land? So that's mystery number one. Mystery number two is sort of an unusual and odd high exalting of Mount Zion. Um, for example, Psalm 48 says, It is beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. We sing that song, don't we? Psalm 50, Mount Zion is perfect in beauty. And then Psalm 68, Oh, other mountains around Israel, why do you gaze in envy at the mountain that the Lord has chosen? Now, if you take these things, you would think, what about Mount Zion? Well, it must be fantastic. It just must be gorgeous. It must be like a a snow-capped mountain peak in Switzerland, so beautiful. Is that what it's like? Well, not really. In fact, we wouldn't even call it a mountain. We would call it a hill. A little dusty area, part of Jerusalem. So why is this sort of over-the-top descriptions of Mount Zion? That's mystery number two. Now, mystery number three is... I'm going to go back a little bit to put up the original text from Psalm 87. I think, is that it? Um, part of it, anyway. But verses 3 through 6, we have a shocking prophecy in Psalm 87. Listen again. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And we'll say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Did you catch that? All these nations, Philistia, Tyre, that's Palestinians, Lebanese, uh, Rahab and Babylon. Rahab is sort of the, the poetic name at the time for Egypt. Rahab and Babylon, those were the superpowers of the day. And Israel was afraid of them. Israel had suffered under them. Israel hated them. 
And so all these surrounding nations, this prophecy is saying, okay, these people are going to be welcomed in to the citizenship of Israel itself. Not just that, but even this sort of high status designation being born in, in Zion. Are you kidding? That would be like a kick in the gut to the Israelite listening to that at the time. You know, Sons of Korah, they supposedly wrote this. This is a career-ending song you've just written. Uh, you know, what, what, what is this about? You know, these bitter enemies. You know, in their mindset, there's two categories of people in the world. There's the people of God, and there's the enemies of God. And guess which is which? And yet you're saying these things about our bitter enemies. Did you catch on TV earlier this week, or last week, Sean Hannity had on his program, Leaders of Al-Qaeda... And he welcomed them onto the program, and in fact, they embraced. And he said, you know, I know we've had our differences, but I just want you to know, and your friends there in Gitmo, you're welcome in the United States. In fact, we're going to make you citizens. We're even going to make you honored citizens. Did, did you catch that this, this last week? You didn't see that? Well, if you didn't see it, um, it's probably because it didn't happen. But if it had, it would be something like this, you know. This is shocking. This is outrageous. And it's interesting that three times in the text, did you notice, three times it says, it's going to be said, they were born in Zion. Not just sort of naturalized citizens, but in some way God would make them born again to become fully included. And these are metaphors for inclusivity, for belonging, for being part of the family now for forever. And it's just wonderful. The Lord... Himself, the Most High, will establish her. He's creating something really uh, special. So third mystery is this outrageous prophecy. Well, how do we understand it? How do we put these things together? Well, part of the solution, I believe, is in Isaiah 25. And if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and flip over there to Isaiah 25. Uh, if you don't, it'll be on the screen in just a moment. But the mysteries are revealed, I believe, in this passage and other passages. Again, Isaiah is writing hundreds of years later. On this mountain, which mountain? Well, chapter 24 is very clear. He's talking about Mount Zion, which we know is Mount Moriah, same place. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Always underscore when you see either all peoples or all nations or the whole world. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. In other words, we're going to have the best ribeye steaks, prime rib, Kobe beef from Japan, wine not less than $100 a bottle, you know, this great feast. Uh, and on this mountain, he will destroy what? The shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers the nations. The stuff that just ruins life and keeps us beaten down. You know, the decline of life and then bringing us to death and grief. He will swallow up death forever. God is going to do something to solve our death problem. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Well, we know what this is now, right? In Jesus. Jesus going to the cross. He did this. But what is the significance of Mount Zion? Is it its beauty? No is that it was militarily strategic? No. Is it that something really cool in history happened and this is commemorating it? No. The significance of Mount Zion is what God would do there to, 
accomplish this. That is what is going on in Psalm 87. And so, back to Psalm 87 again, we've got this sort of crimson thread through the centuries uh, over the same plot of land, Mount Zion or Moriah or Calvary. Abraham, David, Solomon, the temple, Jesus, even Revelation. And it just takes us back to that prophecy in Genesis 22:14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Almost this accidental throwaway line. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I don't know about you, it kind of gives me goosebumps. You know, seeing what the Lord is just doing century after century, all tying and pointing to the same place. Whenever we see or read about Mount Zion in Scripture, it should always point us to the fact that this is a special place, a special way in which God in heaven connects with man on earth. Think of it like one of those magical portals, almost a way in which heaven and earth can connect, almost like those TV shows, you know, where they jump through the thing and go into another place. I don't even know what those TV shows are, but you've seen them. The term lately, in the last hundred years, has taken on a huge political overtone with Israel and, and so forth, and that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God bringing man to himself. Now, how is it today? Is is Zion and Jerusalem now just a picture of peace and harmony with man and God? Well, anything but. But we're not done yet. One very scholarly commentary talks about Psalm 87 in this way that very clearly it's talking about the city of the new birth of the nations. So we have Palestinians, Egyptians, Lebanese, Iraqis, Syrians, in other words, Arabs, all the people surrounding Israel. But, you know, they're just emblematic of all peoples, all peoples everywhere. And you and I are Gentiles, except for maybe a few Jewish people in here. Uh, So thank goodness that God has a plan to reach all of us uh, Gentiles as well. Some of you have heard me say, and, and people are generally encouraged to hear that in at least in Frontiers Ministries in the Middle East, uh, we've seen people come to the Lord and or get involved in ministry and and lead ministries from Hamas, from Hezbollah, from the Muslim Brotherhood, from the Taliban, even from Al-Qaeda. It's just such a, a great picture that no human heart is impenetrable by the Holy Spirit. No group of people is impenetrable by the power of the great, of the gospel. Right, So, let's tie this back together then. The cool thing about Psalm 87, it doesn't just stop there. It really ties into the end of history. What do I mean? Well, Psalm 87, 86, 9 says, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. And in Revelation 5, 9, again, at the end of time, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And even Jesus, just before going to the cross on the Mount of Olives, as his disciples says, when will the end of history be? He said, well, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached where? in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come 
See, the plan of God is all wrapped around the good news getting to all the nations. History is linear. It is going someplace. And it's all tied to the preaching of the gospel and the harvest of the nations. Arabs, Chinese, Americans, Hmong, Pashtu, Guatemala. We could go on and on and on. God is bringing for the bride of Christ people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then, finally, we have this strange verse at the end of Psalm 87, verse 7. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. Well, that's a head-scratcher, isn't it? As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in, are in you. What's that talk? Well, it's obviously talking about music and dancing and celebrating, probably food, a little party. You know, just as people come to the Lord... There's new life. There's new joy. There's new energy. There's new excitement about being right with God and having, knowing where you're going in this irrepressible new life that people have in Christ. And historically in missions, as the gospel, you know, for the first time penetrates new ethno-linguistic groups or people groups or cultures, you know, almost always music is, is unleashed. And it's sometimes for the first time in history, a culture will have all the beginnings of music in their culture. We're actually, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Now, I want to go back a little bit to the Muslim world. Our particular mission agency, Frontiers, just focuses on the Muslim world. And, of course, there are many other uh, unreached people groups, but we just feel like we have to focus, we have to specialize. We need to be like Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, just do chicken. You know, don't mess with burgers or things. You know, it's just complicated enough. And we want to show respect by really trying to, to sensitively go into the Muslim world. Most of you know Muslims are those who follow the religion of Islam. And 1,400 years ago, their prophet Muhammad came and brought the Quran, and that, that's Muslims. And, and Muslims are, are huge. 1.6 billion people in the world today. Over five times the population of the United States. They're everywhere. And of course, not just Arabs. But when we think of Muslims, when we hear it, we kind of immediately think of what? Terrorism. Now, terrorism is real. It's a real issue. But you've heard probably from this pulpit many times, the vast majority of Muslims around the world are normal people. Normal families, men, women, children going to school, just normal families. They're not, into, they're not terrorists. They don't even support terrorism. In fact, tragically, the biggest, did you know this, the... Most, the vast majority, in fact, of victims of terrorism in the world today are Muslims themselves. And that the real grievous thing about Muslims today is that they haven't heard about Jesus. I mean, like 99% of Muslims in the world today have not once heard a real clear message and explanation about Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is a highly exalted figure in Islam, but they're not told about him being the Savior. They're not told about what happened on Mount Moriah, on Calvary, to do the things we just saw. Um, so this represents a great urgency for the church. We've got to get there. We've got to go out there with a, with a message, and, and as Jesus told us, to, as he sent us. Um, and uh, don't think for a minute, though, that missions to Muslims is some sort of neo-colonial, triumphalistic you know, the clash between Christianity and Islam, and we want to win, and we want to beat them, and, you know, we want to see converts and have, you know, numbers on the scoreboard like it's a football game or something. That's, that's not the spirit which, 
which we approach Muslims. And it's not the spirit of the New Testament. Rather, the uh, mission statement in Frontiers is simply this. With love and respect, inviting all Muslim peoples to follow Jesus. We've got to go with love. We've got to go with humility. We've got to go seeking nothing except you know, their best interests and showing God's love in real practical ways, both in their temporal needs and, of course, as well as their e eternal needs. And with respect, really respect. I mean, you know, can we approach Muslim countries and cultures with respect? Absolutely. There's so much in these cultures, in their heritage, in their history, that is so much, just so good. And we need to learn from them. So with love and respect, we approach these, these cultures. Well, how's it going? Well, the harvest work among Muslims in the world today is changing in really exciting ways. Uh, let me read to you just a little bit from the most recent edition of Mission Frontiers. Some of you might want to subscribe to that. I think it's pretty cheap, but really good stuff usually. The work God is doing today among Muslims is so historic and unprecedented that I wonder if any of us can truly comprehend it. Never before in the 1400 years since the death of Muhammad have we seen so many Muslims come to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And these are not just isolated individuals, but whole families and cultures. And I quoted last week, those of you who are here, uh, my friend David Garrison's writing a book, and he says there's a whole new wind going through the house of Islam. And in 1,400 years of history of, of Muslims in the world, um, there have been a, a, a number of movements to Christ, movements being defined as a thousand people or more making Jesus their Savior and Lord. But did you know 87% of all the movements in history to Christ from Islam have happened in the last 12 years? I mean, I said that last week, but I want to say it again. 87% of all movements to Christ, out of Islam to Christ, have occurred in the last 12 years. This is wonderful days to be in the harvest. Maybe upwards of 5 million Muslims who are our brothers and sisters in Christ are following Jesus right now. And coal has a tremendous investment over the decades. Uh, so many people, I, I hesitate to say all of them because I'll forget somebody and then you know, they'll, they'll be offended. I will say the Armstrongs, by the way, it's great to see you guys over here, uh, just having come back from Indonesia, a Muslim country, the largest, most populous Muslim country. Uh, but just such an investment of so many missionaries, families, singles, you know, out in the Muslim world, and it's, it's delightful to be from and supported by this, this church. Well, let's go back to the olive branch that I was talking about, this, this network of a particular team was leading. Uh, several things have happened in the, in the uh, recent months. One of those who was injured in the hospital, David, he was going to lose his leg. It was that bad. But he went off to Russia, where he had been a student, and got surgery, and he was healing up great. Then he came back into the country, and within a, a few weeks, he was actually met on the street by an extremist and shot. Right through his stomach. He was, he was so fortunate not to have died in the hospital, but it's been a, just a real touch-and-go situation. And uh, even recently, his family went into the hospital and says, we're, he's our relative, we're going to take him out of here, and we're going to finish the job. And he would have died had it not been for this one very courageous doctor says, you're not going to touch him, you're not taking him anywhere. Um, other things have occurred. Uh, there's been sermons consistently from the mosques over the loudspeakers. This is terrible, all these Christians, 
all these people. This is a shame on our tribe, on our culture, on our religion. It's we've, you know, there's now Bibles and believers in every single home among tens of thousands of people in our tribe. Well, that's an exaggeration. Would that it were true. <laughs> but you know, that's the kind of stuff that's going over the, the mosques, loudspeakers. One of the fellows, William, he had a pelvis, uh, a broken pelvis from the original attack, but he recovered. He was at a sister's wedding earlier this year. And uh, after the wedding, of course, is the reception. And everybody goes over to these marquees or big tents, men on one side, women on the other. So he goes in, he's a little bit late. And as soon as he walks in the door, all discussion stops. It became so quiet, you could you know, hear a pin drop. And finally, one of them stood up and said, You, you're one of those Christians. You, you're the ones who bring such dishonor to our tribe. And in that moment, William knew he had a decision to make. He could either kind of evade it or he could go for it. And he said, well, pulled out his wallet, pulled out his identity card, which all citizens have to carry. It says, it says here I'm a Muslim. But let me tell you about my faith. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. And so for the next hour with these 50 men, he had this back and forth question and answer. And even toward the end, there got some questions that he couldn't, he couldn't answer. They got to be too hard. So he called Ahmed on the phone. Ahmed's this delightful young man, by the way. I had a couple hours with him in Starbucks. And anyway, called Ahmed on the phone. He said, Ahmed, we've got some hard questions. I can't answer them. So Ahmed would take the tougher questions. And it was almost, he was on speaker. It was almost like a radio call-in show. But then a little bit later, William was shot. And uh, it was just a miracle he didn't die. The bullet lodged right by his heart. So close, it's, it's inoperable. His heart literally has stopped several times, and it's a miracle he's still alive. It, he's actually kind of recovering. All of these martyrdoms, and there's been in the country, uh, you know, probably read at least a dozen Muslim background believers who have laid down their lives for Jesus just in the last year. Really tragic. It's really sad. I mean, as these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the heroes of the faith, and our hearts go out to them. But uh, let me just read you a little bit from an email from my friend who's the team leader in this situation. And he said he and Ahmed and the others have been getting together, particularly to grapple over the question of safety. How can they identify themselves? How can they present their faith and not bring the whole house down on top of them? So he says, in the end, Ahmed summarily said, we cannot stop talking about Jesus. Believe me, many, many times we've tried. We tell people, don't be foolish when you talk about Jesus. But they say, I can't help it. Many times I have tried not to talk about Jesus, but it just slips out. These guys have found the good news, and they are eager to share it with their friends and families. So please pray that I can have wisdom in how to coach these guys. I don't want to see them put themselves unnecessarily in harm's way. But the reality here seems to be that they love Jesus. They want to talk about him and his kingdom. And there's almost zero tolerance for such things among their tribe. Well, what's he talking about? What he's talking about is Psalm 87.7. That irrepressible joy and energy, having found the pearl of great price, it cannot be stopped. It can't help but come out, uh, despite the costs and the, the price to be paid. Well, there's other things I'd like to talk to you about. I want to invite you, as I did last week, 
to a lunch that we're having just after this service, 12.15, 12.30, over in the fireside room, where we're going to eat pizza together on our nickel. You're welcome. Please uh, accept that invitation if you can. And then I are going to have an opportunity to share a bit more detail about our ministry and some of the remarkable things happening in the Middle East. Things you're not going to hear about on the news. Things about the harvest going forward. You know, we'll talk about the Syrians. You know, the Syrian Muslims in the war have suffered so grievously. And well over two million of them are now outside of, of Syria. And they're, they're living in appalling conditions. And they've all lost loved ones. And yet, did you know, hundreds, if not thousands, have already come into the kingdom through this tragedy. And it's not just, you know, the Muslims and the Muslim back, you know, those who come to faith, and then the missionaries who are trying to be a catalyst in all this, but there's a third party in the equation. And that's the, the Christian minorities in these countries. Now, you've all read recently about, like, for example, the Christian minority in Egypt, and they're suffering a lot, and that's true. Even just this few days ago, there was a, like a church shooting um, around the Giza area where the pyramids are. And the, the Christians have suffered. But, you know, so many of these churches, even the Coptic churches, they love the Lord, they're Bible-centered, and they're saying to themselves, we are under a lot of repression, it's really unfair, but we've got to be faithful to Jesus to bring the Word of God to the majority people in our land. Did you know they had a prayer meeting last year in Egypt, the, the Christians did, let's pray for our country let's pray, and let's pray specifically for the Muslim majority in our country 71,000 people came to that prayer meeting have you ever been to a prayer meeting of 71,000 I haven't you know, so God is doing a new thing even among the Christian minorities in these countries well anyway if you're able please come hear more of these things in our, in our lunch today just to wrap this up four quick things how does this apply to us very practically I don't know about you, but this really caused, stirs up in me a, de, a desire to worship. You know, to see what God has been doing from centuries, millennia ago, through the cross, through today, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. And then when I see that tied in with the end of history where God is going, you know, I'm not a very emotional guy, but this always gets to me. And it just leads me to, to worship. And to see that the Psalm 87, the seven-verse poem that was ri- written 2,700 years ago is so relevant today. In fact, it's more relevant today because now we see the unfolding, the blossoming exactly of these things. Second thing, I would just urge everyone here, make sure your name is registered in in the register of the people that you're born in Zion. In other words, make sure you're one of the people that is right with God and is part of the family of God. If you came in this morning and you weren't sure that you're right with God, please get that sorted before you leave today. Numerous people that would be happy to talk to you about that, of getting, making sure that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Thirdly, I think we need to reprogram sometimes our thinking. You know, maybe sometimes we can be tempted to think that, you know, all this stuff about the nations, that's kind of out here, that's maybe a little adjunct, a little tangential. And obviously we see, we come to a passage like this and we realize, no, it's, it's absolutely central. This is absolutely core on the heart of God and the workings of God in the world and in the church, in the local church. You know, the problem was, you know, once we put a label on all this, what God is doing in the nations, once we do that, we kind of, it becomes ordinary. Once we call it missions or something, it just kind of becomes a department or something. And obviously it's much more than that. And then lastly, I would just encourage everybody to get involved in one way or another. 
Get involved. And this isn't kind of like, as a missionary, oh, please, will you get involved? No. Who wouldn't want to be involved in these things? I mean, this is the most exciting things in the world. Who wouldn't want to be involved in these things? And, there's, you know, there's different ways to get involved. Just real quickly, 30 seconds, maybe. You can, go, you can get involved as a goer. For sure, some in this room are going to go out to the mission field, to the places, the unreached peoples, where the needs are the, absolutely the, the greatest and the people who have never heard. Be a goer. And don't fall into that trap of thinking that the only people who can maybe be, you know, go out to the field are 20-somethings. You know, missions is kind of like bungee jumping. It's just for young people. Well, no, wrong. I was at the gym a little bit ago, and I saw this, this young guy, and he had this T-shirt on. It said, well, I'd rather be scared than bored. And I thought, well, the older I get, bored is kind of underrated, really. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, whole, the, the country of Turkmenistan in a few decades ago, a couple decades ago, was opened by a retired school teacher couple. And behind them came a whole bunch of people behind them. Anyway, maybe God has a hand on your life to be a goer. Secondly, be a sender. What does it mean to be a sender, to be involved, to stand behind those who are going out to the field? Well, there's so many different things. You've heard it a hundred times. I won't go through it. I will just say, it's, I so appreciate our prayer team. These are people who have committed to pray for us on a regular basis. And just even yesterday, I was feeling a little under the weather. I sent out a bulletin saying, please pray for me. I'm feeling a little maybe fighting off something. And within two hours, I felt better. I just, it's just great having this prayer team behind us, uh, among other things. And then finally, there's ways to get involved locally uh, in, in wonderful ways with refugees. Isn't it wonderful how, I'm going to say in a very disproportionate way, Boise is becoming a hub for refugees from all sorts of nations, including Muslim nations. A bunch of, there's a whole Afghan community just down Eustick Road by Five Mile. Did you know that? And it's not unusual for people to come to the Lord because some Christian reach out to, reaches out to them, invites them to something, helps them in some way, shares the love of Christ. And then as they come to the Lord, they'll lead family members to the Lord. I mean, we hear these things all the time, even within Cole. And even sometimes, and this has happened in some of your ministries, as people come to the Lord here, the gospel then travels back to the original country and family members come to the Lord out there. So much potential in getting involved among the refugees here in Boise. We're going to take our few remaining minutes to celebrate the Lord's table together, communion. This is a time, of course, to reflect on Jesus voluntarily laying down his life for us uh, that we might be right with God and to commemorate his suffering on our behalf and Unlike Abraham's son, where a substitute was provided, Jesus was sacrificed. So let's quiet our hearts. Paul said that let a man examine himself and then take up the bread and the cup. Let's ask the Lord to help us remove all distractions and really focus on our, our Lord Jesus and the night in which he was arrested and then the suffering the next day. Uh, all who are followers of Jesus are welcome to participate in the sacrament, whether you're members of this church or not. And I'll just say one thing. If anybody needs gluten-free for the bread, we have that provided in the back. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul several times talked about the mystery hidden for ages now revealed. In other words, Paul was saying there's been things in the plan of God that have been murky for centuries, even for millennia, and now in just the last few years with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, we now know it. We, we, We now got it. We now understand how it fits together. Jesus said in the Last Supper, if you can kind of picture that last time in the upper room, you know, if you think of maybe Da Vinci's painting or some other picture that helps put you there, he took that wine glass and he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it occurred to me recently that that was the first time in history where that became clear. I mean, in the Old Testament, there were some hints about this, but that was the first time it became clear that God was going to accomplish forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial death of the Messiah. And what came next in the next few hours was his arrest, then his execution, Jesus of Nazareth, what seemed like a pretty ordinary event probably to many people at the time. But now we know it was no ordinary event. It was cosmic. It was eternal. As we take the cup, let's make it personal. Remind ourselves that apart from the death of Christ, we're lost. You're lost. I'm lost. But with it, We are right with God forever. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you. We are yours. You have purchased us. And we thrill knowing we will be with you forever. All glory be to you. Amen. Well, Before we disperse, I'll just mention that every time we have the Lord's table, there is a special fund or collection called the Fellowship Fund, which is taken up by the back doors. And it's for those who, amongst us who are struggling financially. So that is available if you would like to participate in that. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever. Amen.